we're cer certainly going to miss having Renee and Tyler with us in uh, helping lead worship, and I hope uh, that they both are able to get plugged in and uh, lead worship up in Lynchburg in local churches. It'll be hard to find a bass player that can play as many notes as Tyler, for sure. Done a great job, versatile and talented, and, and that's an incredible blessing. Uh, we read the scripture earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where we'll be today, so if you'll turn there again, 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, follow along in your, your uh, copy of the Bible or your device. We wanna, we've been talking about resurrection. We took a little aside last week to look at vision for our congregation, but the week before that, we, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 has 58 verses, and all of it is about the um, resurrection of Jesus. And so it's interesting, you know, the apostles uh, led a movement as the Holy Spirit led them that shifted the day of worship for these people who predominantly were Jewish believers and who had always in their whole life worshipped on the Sabbath. The resurrection, the reality of it was so powerful for them that it changed their day of worship. You know, we worship on the first day of the week, what would have been for them the first day of the week, the, and we call it what? The Lord's Day, right? It's not Sabbath in the sense that they would have understood it in the first century. It's the Lord's Day. It's the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it's just one way that you see how powerful this reality of resurrection was for them. And we're going to talk today about one of the fundamentals of our faith. And we've you know, fundamental, the word fundamentalist has a bad rap in our day, right? When people talk about fundamentalists, they usually think about violence and extremism. It's a bad word. But that wasn't so in like the end of the 19th century when they talked about the uh, fundamentals of Christianity. Really, it was something to be recovered. In fact, um, I ordered a book this week by a writer named R.A. Torrey, and it came in and I read the section on resurrection. It was a good excuse for me to buy another book, but uh, Torrey edited a bunch of essays and compiled them, and they, they're called Fundamentals. And, and one of the fundamentals, Torrey actually wrote this article, was about the resurrection. And so for them... In the, around the 19th century, uh, theological liberalism began to take hold in a lot of the uh, institutions that trained pastors. And so they recognized that there was a need to uh, intervene and to recapture in, essentially the biblical uh, teaching about the faith so that we didn't go way off course. It's interesting, uh, Tory, when you study about him, was a professor at Biola University. You know, a lot of the universities were originally founded as uh, centers to train, peop uh, train people in Christian truth, and eventually some of them drifted away from their charter and the principle that they were founded for. But uh, Tory was a professor at Biola, and he was uh, a, a very in influential person in arresting liberalism in, in a, a sort of a, a drift that happened. A real one, not an imagined one. There was a real drift away from uh, solid biblical teaching. And so when we read the Bible, there, one, one thing we need to understand is that there are essential teachings that we cannot uh, loosen our grasp on. 
and the resurrection is one of those that if we let go of it, we've lost something so important to Christianity that Christianity would no longer exist or uh, be powerful in the way that the disciples understood it to be. And so there in Corinth, what Paul is addressing, we've talked before in this letter how often uh, he talks to situations. We said what? It's a situational letter, an occasional letter written to an occasion or situation. And the problem he addresses here is that some people were saying there is no resurrection of the dead. They said there's no resurrection. And so he wrote this uh, uh, defense in 1 Corinthians uh, 15 to say, listen, we need to talk about this. That's a problem. You cannot give away the truth of the resurrection. And when you read the New Testament, you find out that it was the center of their preaching. When they proclaimed Jesus, they always proclaimed resurrection. And, of course, it's not Easter, but that's the Easter idea. And the Easter idea ought to inform our worship all the time. We come together because we believe Jesus is alive. If Jesus is alive, is not alive, we have no reason to come together. And so he speaks about this very important idea, and we're going to talk about it today from this passage. And he first starts by de- uh, describing some of the problems involved in denying the resurrection. He says, these are the problems. If you say there's no resurrection, number one, these are the problems involved in denying the resurrection. He says, if there, as you are saying, is no resurrection then Christ isn't raised. If there's no resurrection, then Christ is not raised in the passage here, beginning in verse number 12. It says, if if uh, Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how are some of you saying there's no resurrection of the dead? So Jesus' triumphant bodily resurrection is indispensable to our belief as followers of Christ. If someone asked you, what's the gospel? What's the good news? What does it say? What is the, what's the Christian belief system? We would have to include in it the idea that on the third day after Jesus had been, res, uh, had been crucified and was placed into a tomb, he came out alive. It's uh, fundamental to our belief system. And that he is, uh, we looked at the first several verses in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and we saw that he, he talked about all the different episodes of Jesus' appearance in his resurrection form, in his body, his physically, visibly had been raised. He, and you remember that uh, the Apostle Paul said he appeared to over 500 people at one time. He said he appeared to Peter. He appeared to the apostles, to James, his brother. I'm reviewing because it's been one week since we looked at that one. But he said he appeared to over 500 people at one time. And it's, it's fascinating. What he's at, you know, doing in describing all that is to say to them, this is a historically well-attested event. All of these people, and he says you could go and interview some of them. They're still alive, although some have, have died. I think it's interesting that he leaves out some important stories, too, in telling them about how well attested. One of my favorite resurrection passages is the one in Luke chapter 22 where it talks about the Emmaus disciples. You remember that these uh, followers of Jesus, all downcast and disappointed, are walking uh, and on, on the road to Emmaus, someone joins these guys and he overhears their conversation. 
and he asked them what they were talking about, as they, why they were so downcast. And they tell him all the things that had happened in Jerusalem, and what had happened for them was that their hope had died on Friday. The one that we had put our confidence in, that he was the Messiah, he was crucified and placed into a tomb. And you remember how, how that Jesus begins to speak to them, and it, this is what he says to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I always think, wouldn't you love to have been part of that conversation? Wouldn't you have loved to have heard Jesus take the Old Testament and take all of these messianic verses and prophecies and walk you through them. And, and you have the opportunity to listen. And, and their eyes are opened. And the Bible says that is a powerful post-resurrection encounter that these disciples of Jesus had. And, and this truth for them is affirmed and it motivates them to proclaim this good news. And so, But in Corinth, some people were discredited in the reality of resurrection. We're not really sure why. You know, maybe it's just because for people events that are miraculous defy our sense of the natural and the and the observable you know we've talked about probably before cults not uh groups that form that depart in some significant way from historic christianity usually one of the ways that they do that is they deny some reality like uh that's disagreeable to them like hell uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses the, uh, started out as a group called the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. And the founder was a guy named Charles T. Uh, T. Russell. And Russell struggled with the, for him, he said, this is a disagreeable doctrine. The Trinity was a difficult doctrine. And so basically he said, we'll just rewrite faith into a way that's palatable and agreeable. And so what happens is that you set aside some biblical uh, reality that you can't you can't give away that's usually what happens it's hard it's disagreeable so we think for them why would they set aside resurrection and they weren't necessarily saying that the spirit didn't live on but they were saying the body when the body goes into the grave that's it that's the end nothing else is is going to happen it's that's that body's fate but that he says listen when you start to say that you destroy christianity because Christianity says Jesus in a body came out of the grave. And, and he, he was witnessed. And then people began to share that with others. That, but that's usually where these kinds of flawed doctrinal ideas come from. Is someone who finds something distasteful. Or they find a, a truth that the Bible plainly you know, speaks to hard for them to get their, their mind around. And so they say, no, that can't be true. And so perhaps that's what's happened here. But Paul says, listen, if you say there's no resurrection, you're saying Jesus isn't resurrected. Jesus isn't uh, risen. And then he also says, if you say this, you're saying the apostolic uh, preaching is empty. The issue is not Jesus' resurrection. It's resurrection, period. And so the implication would be that these things we've preached to you are false, are, are flawed. It's, it's, uh, 
we've been speaking error. And so when we read this passage, a lot of it is a reflection on that idea of what if it were true that there was no res resurrection. He, and that's what he, he's going to speak to them about. If there's no resurrection, he says these are, this is what's altered. This is the fallout if there's no resurrection. And so one of the things that he says about it is that the apostolic preaching is empty. Christ would still be in the grave. The faith of Christians would be useless, he says. What good would our faith be if we've been saying to you that Christ is raised and yet there's no resurrection? He says our faith would be futile if there's no resurrection of Christ. Then the apostles' preaching has is, is, uh, been based on a hoax and your faith is baseless. Why leave home? Why commit the energy to this if there, there's no resurrection? And... Our, our energy would be devoted to empty claims. And so, it, to me, it's the reason that it's important to always go back and examine what the Bible says about resurrection because if it, if it is not true, why should we bother? But if the resurrection is true, if what the disciples attested is accurate, then it becomes for us, the uh, it merits all our devotion. If Jesus is alive, then my whole life is going to be founded on that reality. And, and I'm going to be motivated by that truth. And so that it's why it's worth us, you know, looking at this in the depth that we've been given to it, given it in the scripture. If he says, if it's true that Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then the apostles are false witnesses of God. Essentially, he's saying, are you calling us liars? We've been saying this. We've been preaching this. What are you saying? Are you saying that the apostles who brought this message to you were dishonest, were uh, lying? He, he says, if, that, if there is no resurrection, that's what you're implying. Is, and he said, but we've reported to you that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And he says, if that's not so, then our uh, testimony to you would be, uh, of no account so you know it's when we read scripture we don't get to decide what portions of it we're going to believe and what what we aren't we, we don't get to set aside parts of it you know it's the claim of the bible is that it has given us an accurate when it intends to be history that it's in, intended to be received as an accurate reflection of witnesses and, and people who observed events so Truth isn't in that regard in the eye of the beholder. You know, today we think, well, uh, we are postmodernism basically says that uh, like narratives are, are we are not meant to be necessarily taken literally, and history is malleable. But no, uh, the Bible and the, the resurrection has more to attest it than most of the history that you would take for granted and read out of a college textbook. And it's stated in a way that we're intended to receive it as being a record of what people observed and experienced. And so the apostles, like Paul, said specific things, and he intended to be clearly understood. And so he says that if also if the resurrection didn't happen, the problem of sin is not cured. If Jesus isn't resurrected, the cross is ineffective. If our understanding of the gospel leaves off the resurrection, we're only left with a murder and a tragedy. 
If there's no resurrection, that's all we really had in that event that happened in the first century in Jerusalem. It's just a murder of an innocent person. Everybody that encountered Jesus said those things about him, right? Even Pilate, what did Pilate say? I don't find any fault in this man. And it was clear that there was an attempt to discredit Jesus. But the things he was accused of, every, you know, everyone that observed it said, it's just people that are trying to misrepresent this person's life. There was no, no, nothing to the claims that they were, they were making. And so you really just had a murder if there's no resurrection and a tragedy. The story is incomplete, and the uh, worst part of for you and me is that our sin is not forgiven. The atonement is ineffective because it, we need more than a resurrection. I think about that in sharing the gospel and talking about what good news is. Good news is, is not good news if there's not a resurrection of physical bodily raising of Jesus out of the tomb. In Acts chapter 17, which uh, we looked at here one time before, you remember that Paul goes to the Areopagus, Mars Hill, and while he's in, in Athens, Greece, he observes all of the idols around him, and he proclaims the good news to a group of philosophers and one of the things that he said is that uh, he talks about the resurrection as the evidence of the crucifixions be, being functional and helpful and, and accomplishing the forgiveness of our sins. He says that God's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he, and he says the man that he's going to judge the world in righteousness of, he's given strong evidence by raising him from the dead. Raising him from the dead. He says the way that we know who the person is that God used as the atoning sacrifice for the world, the evidence of who he is is that God raised him out of the tomb, that God raised him from the dead. So in, in fact, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then you have a problem. I like the sign that's over at uh, the church at Goshen Baptist. Usually church signs are not well done. <laughs> but this one says... Everybody has a problem that only God can solve. That's true. Yeah, I'm like, well done. Good job on your sign. Everybody has a problem that only God can solve. And that problem is the problem that our sin has alienated us from God. That God is holy and that people fail. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if there's no resurrection, the cross was not effective because Jesus had to be raised. According to the uh, scripture. And then death, if Jesus isn't resurrected, death is final. Death is final. How many times have we stood at the graveside of a loved one? You know, the older you get, the more often that will have happened in your life. And we hear the pastor say, See then that you do not mourn as others who have no hope. He says, you don't have to because of this person's confidence in Jesus' resurrection. He says, you don't have to grieve or mourn like a person who doesn't have hope. We've been to three funerals uh, basically over the last five weeks or so for family members. And you heard that again and again that each of these people as they died in faith, 
We don't have to mourn like people who don't have hope because that person's hope was in the fact that even though their, their body went into the ground, Jesus' body came out of the ground already. And we're going to see that he, because he's raised, we have resurrection hope. But if it's not so that Jesus was raised from the dead, then the, we've been false witnesses. Those pastors that stood at the graveside of family members and said, don't grieve like you don't have any hope, have been false witnesses because Christ isn't raised. He says the resurrection is fundamental, essential. And if Jesus isn't raised then life really is a tale told by an idiot, like Shakespeare said, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And he's going to say, we're going to look at it next week, if Jesus isn't raised, he said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. In other words, live like there are no consequences if Jesus isn't raised. Why would you live otherwise? And what he's telling us is you ought to live this way, your faith ought to impact your life, because Christ is risen, and what we're telling you isn't a myth or a fairy tale or a hoax. And that's the other thing we see that he says in this passage, is if Jesus isn't raised, then we've committed a terrible uh, sin, really. Or, or we've committed a, a falsehood. Because he, he says, if Jesus isn't raised, we are of all people most pitiable. We're to be pitied more than anybody else. Why? Because you have exercised your life like something was true when in fact it was not true. And then we get one of these great turning points in the second part of this passage where in verse 20 he says, but now, secondly, Christ is raised. So we see the realities affirmed by the resurrection next. These are the realities. The problems that we see if Jesus isn't raised, we've talked about, but now... He says, here's that turning point. But now Jesus is raised, he says. And, and he says, this is what we're affirming to you, beginning there in verse, uh, verse number 20. He says, Christ is raised from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So his triumph is the empty tomb. And his victory is that he laid down his life for us. And Jesus became the forerunner of other resurrections so that we, you know, any cemetery that we pass, those people who have believed in Christ will be resurrected by righteous, uh, in righteousness, the Bible says. Everybody, there's a general resurrection. Everybody's body will be resurrected according to Scripture, some to hope and some to damnation, some to... Uh, forgiveness and, and the life that they've hoped for their entire life and some to uh, tragic disappointment and alienation from God. But the Bible says everyone will, uh, will be raised. And his triumph for us is that his tomb was empty. He, Je Jesus said this in the Gospel of John. He said, I lay my life down. And he says that I may take it up again. He says, I have the authority or the power to lay it down. And he says, I have the authority to take it back up again. Jesus voluntarily laid down his life in the crucifixion. But Jesus also had the authority, the power in himself to be raised from... It's interesting, I heard this guy uh, talk about one time that in the New Testament, if you read the New Testament, you can find places where it says Jesus raised Jesus from the dead, the Father raised Jesus from the dead, 
the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. So Jesus says, I have the authority to, to be raised up again. So he knew that in laying down his life, he would be raised from the dead. Jesus made the atoms and molecules. The Bible says in uh, Hebrews chapter 1, and also in the Gospel of John, also in the book of Colossians, he's before all things, it says in Colossians, and in him all things consist or adhere. So Jesus himself made the molecules and made the atoms that compose what is you and me. When I look in the mirror, the stuff that makes me flesh and blood, the parts of me. He made that. Jesus did. So if we think that it's impossible for him to overcome decomposition, you know, that's what happens. uh, The person whose funeral we attended yesterday had been cremated. And the, the process is just speeded up, right? But that same process will happen to anybody whose body goes into the ground. From dust we came, the Bible says, to dust we return. The decomposition happens. The minute you die, you begin to decompose. The Bible says that Jesus made those elements that make up you. And if we think, well, resurrection's too big a job for him. There's a book in my office by a writer named J.B. Phillips, and J.B. Phillips said, your God is too small. Your God is too small. If we think Jesus can't overcome decomposition, our God is too our God is too small. And that was part of their problem. Is that their their concept of who God was didn't match all the things that God Himself had said through the prophets, through the apostles, through Jesus, who constantly said to his disciples that I'm going to Jerusalem to die, and on the third day what? I'm going to be resurrected. I'm going to be raised from the dead. He said that to them again and again. So the scripture says Christ is raised. That's the reality that's affirmed here that he speaks about. Then all others will be raised. He uses the idea and theology of Adam. Adam was the first man. It meant man. That's what the word means. That first man, Adam, the Bible says, By one man, this is in Romans chapter uh, 5, sin came into the world and by sin death and death spread to all people and that all have sinned. So we go, what's wrong with the world? Well, the Bible says the fall occurred and that because of sin, death came into people's reality and everybody is facing unless Jesus returns and history is completely altered. The reality of our own death. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, which meant alienation, but physical death occurred. And it's the rule in the world, right? That's the world you live in and I live in. Not something we pleasantly like to think about every day. But the truth is, death is the rule. And the Bible says that the uh, cause of sin is that we attend funerals and we go to places where people's lifespan has come to an end and you know sometimes it's when people get a long and fruitful life and sometimes they don't but the truth is death is the rule because the bible says through adam sin and death became the reality for all humanity but it says here's what happened in jesus is that the transaction that occurred in the cross and the resurrection is that things became reversed 
He reversed the problem of death. Do, does that mean people don't still die? No, they do. But the Bible says he conquered death in his own resurrection, and his resurrection points to the hope of future resurrections. He's the first fruits is the way that it's described here in the Scripture. And so he, he is the first of a harvest of resurrections. He's the first of a harvest of resurrection. He's the first. When we read the Bible, we say, really? Because didn't Jesus raise Lazarus, Lazarus out of the tomb? Yeah, he did, didn't he? Before Jesus was raised, Lazarus was raised. Before Jesus was raised, a child was raised by Jesus. What does it mean to call him the first fruits then? Well, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. You remember that? That's at the, the graveside of Lazarus to his sisters. So he says, look, Lazarus is raised. This little girl will be raised. In the Old Testament, there were resurrections. But he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. None of these people could be raised if it weren't for me. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the reason that any uh, resurrection can occur. And so it's his power. This, in the scripture we learn that his great love led him to willingly lay down his life. And his great power enabled him to take it back up again. To be raised up from the grave. And so the scripture says things like this to us. Whoever has the son has life. But whoever doesn't have the son does not have life. That's what the Bible says. The, the Bible says God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Aren't you glad for that? God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Whoever believes in him is, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Jesus came to take away the condemnation that sin caused and but the Bible says our faith, we have to believe and then be uh, forgiven. And he is the first fruits of those uh, who will experience a resurrection. Without him, the promise uh, and the promise of hope he offers, there would not be others. But he says now Christ is raised from the dead and he's become for us our hope of resurre resurrection to life. And the question, I think, for each person is, is that my hope? Is that my own peace? Is that my understanding? Is that the description that you understand about yourself? Is like, yes, I'm going to die one day. Yes, people are going to mourn at my uh, graveside, but the hope that I have is that I'm going to be raised because Christ is raised. You know, that's the most important thing any of us would uh, be able to say about ourselves. Jesus, the scripture teaches, will return and raise his own saints. No matter how, this is a writer named Leon Morris. He says, no matter how strong the powers of earth and hell may seem, no matter how much the Christian may fear that the wicked will triumph at the climax of history, it is Christ and none other who reigns and must reign. And we need to remind ourselves of that reality. We look at the things that are going on in the world Sometimes, and it looks like uh, evil is prevalent. The Bible says Jesus is the victor, and Jesus is the one who, at the uh, climax of history, 
he'll, he'll reign. I love the old hymn that says, Have faith in God, he's on his throne. Have faith in God, he watches over his own. He cannot fail, he must prevail. Have faith in God, it says. That's one of my favorite hymns. Have faith in God. He can't fail, he won't fail. And he's, he's proven that, given evidence by being raised. God is going to consummate everything and there will be no more death at some point in the future. Death, who has come for so many, God is coming for you, the scripture says. God's coming for death. I love that passage that says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I love uh, Tommy Strickland. I think he's awesome. His family is. They've been such a presence in this county forever. But God's going to put him out of business one day. That's what the scripture says. He's going to close up all of the funeral homes. He's going to take all the mortuaries and put them out of, out of business. There won't be any more because the last enemy to be destroyed is death. There will be no more death. And God will be all in all. This is such a, a really difficult uh, part of what Paul says here about Jesus. And I think what he's trying to make plain in the last part of the verses that we're reading this week, he's put all things under his feet, it says, verse 27. But when he says all things are put under him, he's talking about Jesus, and he's citing an Old Testament passage that says he's put all things under his feet. It's evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. In other words, he's saying, he's uh, reaffirming, in, in a sense, the equality in the Godhead, that God exists in three persons as he's revealed himself. And Paul distinguishes here that the Father is accepted, not included in all the things that will be uh, put under him we understand that Jesus when he came to this earth chose voluntarily to submit for a time uh, and while he was a human the Bible says he chose in a season uh, of history to voluntary, uh, voluntarily subject himself to his father he emptied himself the Bible says of his prerogatives Philippians chapter 2 that we're familiar with where he says, uh, the Bible says that um, let this mind be in you which was also in, G in Christ Jesus who even though he was in the form of God, the Bible says did not uh, consider equality with God a thing to be grasped but he made himself of no reputation and he took upon himself the form of a servant and he came in the likeness of a servant and was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. So Jesus voluntarily emptied himself of his prerogatives uh, even though he was God he released the, he didn't stop being God but he came in the form of a servant for the express reason that he might die for the sins of people Hebrews says since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself partook of the same thing that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil now the church the year flies by in a hurry, right? It's already August, and it won't be long. We'll start thinking about Christmas. It's like, you know, it, it won't be that long, right? You'll go into Cracker Barrel. They'll have all the Christmas stuff out, or Walmart probably has it out now. But we think about there's a season where we remember this reality that Jesus himself, God, took on flesh. God became human, and he did that to affect our forgiveness. The incarnation, to me, one of the most powerful truths of our faith that we celebrate is that he became human 
for the express reason that he might die, but he did not stay in the tomb. God, uh, in the end, will obviously be the God who's always existed from forever in community in three persons as he has been from the very onset. And uh, Gordon Fee wrote this. He says, The will of the one and only God will be supreme in every quarter and in every way. And Jesus' work, uh, which is complete, is subordinated in the Godhead. So that's uh, how we make sense of that very complicated couple of verses there, is that Jesus Christ did what he needed to do in uh, submitting himself to the will of the Father there's coming a day when God is all in all and and we'll experience and think about that totally differently fundamentals are essential if you ask any uh any coach they'd say fundamentals are essential it's beginning of football season they're in training camp doing what fundamentals they're getting to hopefully my team's learning how to do things the right way I hope your team's not but I hope my team is so you ask any coach and they will tell you, hey, you've got to do the fundamentals. You've got to repetition. You've got to do the right thing the right way uh, again and again. Ask any teacher, right, Donnie? You're back at school. What are you trying to teach them? The fundamentals. Uh, those of you that are involved in education, you recognize that, hey, we, we know that they're important, uh, inscrutable things too, right? They don't change. They'll be the same, uh, these essential ideas. In the same way, the Bible says, listen, there are some inscrutable ideas. This is something that you can't trade off because it's difficult for you uh, to get your brain around. Jesus is raised. And this is a basic belief for us that gives us hope. I, that was the main sensation for me as I studied uh, over the last few weeks and ta thought about resurrection. You know how it made me feel? Hopeful. That's how it made me feel hopeful it reminded me of this important reality that all the suffering and pain and sorrow we experience in life is not for nothing that there's coming a day when jesus is going to raise us up and we're going to experience the life that we were intended for where there's no more death and no more sickness and no more temptation to wickedness and all of this the things that we encounter now he's going to make everything new Aren't you glad about that? He's going to make everything new. Don't you want other people to experience that? I mean, I hope everybody experiences that. I know they won't, sadly. But we have hope and we have the opportunity to offer it to other people. We, we live in a world that desperately needs foundational realities. Not shifting sands and the latest moral fad. That's what people live on now. Latest moral fad. Something else uh, all the time that we're like, what? Where's this craziness? Where did that come from? Well, God gives us foundational realities about what it means to be human and what it means to be redeemed and what it means to have our sins atoned for. And Jesus, the scripture says, is alive and he'll bring history to its conclusion in the right way and God's lasting kingdom will become a technicolor reality. And then the most important issue will be our surrender. Did we surrender? Did we stop being in opposition to God? Did we stop being an enemy? Did we become a friend of God by saying yes to his son and the sacrifice that he made for us? And, and that's the most important 
reality. And that's why Paul wrote uh, 58 verses that we're going to look at some more of coming up about resurrection and what resurrection implies and why it's so vital. We're going to have a time of commitment now. And we're going to sing a song together. And the this is always a uh, invitation time, a commitment time. And uh, that says what? Acting on what you've heard. There may be some way today that you need to act on what you've heard, either by uh, experiencing repentance, maybe by putting your faith in Jesus completely and publicly identifying with him. One of the ways we publicly identify with Jesus is through baptism. It's a way that we give evidence of having said yes to the gospel. And so uh, as we have this invitation time, I uh, hope that however God is leading in your life, that you'll respond to him. And um, let's pray. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for its truth and reality. Thank you for reminding us of these uh, basic uh, fundamental tenets of our 